So a poem came to me in my email today that kept tugging at me. It wants to be read tonight. And I'm going to read you the first half of it because it's quite a long poem. And I want to read it to you because it speaks to me some of the mystery of being human. And that's some of what I want to talk about tonight. It's from David Wagoner. And he says, When Lawrence Vanderpost one night in the Kalahari Desert told the Bushmen he couldn't hear the stars singing, they didn't believe him. They looked at him half smiling. They examined his face to see whether he was joking or deceiving them. Then two of those small men who plant nothing who have almost nothing to hunt, who live on almost nothing and with no one but themselves, led him away from the crackling thorn scrub fire and stood with him under the night sky and listened. One of them whispered, Do you not hear them now? And Vanderpost listened, not wanting to disbelieve, but had to answer, no. They walked him slowly, like a sick man, to the small, dim circle of firelight and told him they were terribly sorry. And he felt even sorrier for himself and blamed his ancestors for their, his, for their strange loss of hearing which was his loss now. So maybe you can chew on it. He goes on to talk about how he goes out to look at the stars and see what he can hear. Hmm. This being human, huh? It's pretty astounding, all of its dimensions, many of which we forgot. So we've been together for four days now, And this is our fifth night. And today, as I sat with a number of you, as I've done for the last couple of days, as we've all done, it's felt like I heard many, even in just 11 or 12 interviews, of the 10,000 joys and sorrows of the human condition. So things are cooking here in this quiet, you're probably much more quiet than you think you are. And when the way that the heart and the mind begins to open as we practice together. Not too long ago, in some reading I was doing, a wonderful question or koan came to me from another teacher. And I've been working with it, and in this practice I look around, wherever I am, and I ask, what is this? What is this? And I've seen a lot of you actually gazing around with wonder, the snakes, the turkeys, your lunch, the clouds, your grief, your joy. And in a sense what's on your face is, what? What indeed is this? What is this? And we've been doing the practices of mindfulness 
And then we've been including some loving-kindness practice and working with opening the heart towards ourselves, which is certainly what we do in both mindfulness practice and metta practice, and towards all beings. And there are other practices of the heart that we're not stressing, but I want to mention a bit tonight. One is the closely related practice of compassion, of karuna, which is the practice of being able to be fully present to our own pain and that of others. And mindfulness itself, actually, is an excellent training in compassion, and you've undoubtedly been sitting one way or another with some of your own pain in these last days. And there's the practice of mudita, or sympathetic joy, uh, the practice in which we relax into and enjoy our own happiness and that of others. And then last of all, there's the practice of upeka, or equanimity, of staying balanced, of being able to ride the various waves of life. And if you're new here, you're probably realizing, oh, that's the dorms. <laughs> so if you forget, you, know, you can go and look at the dorms, metta, karuna, mudita, and upeka. And so all of these practices share kind of a common theme, which is the ability to meet our experience inwardly and outwardly with a steady and open heart. But of course the interesting question is, how does this work? You know, how do we do that? How, do, how could we possibly learn to do that? And so last night Gil talked about freedom from identification with our thoughts and our emotions. And it's probably actually fairly painfully obvious to you right now how caught we get in our stories and our emotions and how often the heart gets vulnerable and it's wounded and it closes fairly tight. So in looking at identification with stories and that way in which we get closed and solid and tight, it seems actually pretty important to begin the discussion tonight with a discussion about the nature of self before we get to the heart. And then we'll look at how the heart and the self work together. So in Buddhist practice, there are three major realms of insight. Many of you are quite familiar with this. Sharda the other night talked some about dukkha, about that place of, that is um, looking at the inherent unsatisfactoriness of our existence, that there isn't anything ever which in time and space, which is permanently fine. Okay, settled, done. And the second is where we notice how incredibly impermanent everything is, that everything's always arising and passing. You know, even the longest sitting comes to an end sooner or later. And then we notice that no matter how hard we look, we can't find anything that is solid, separate, permanent, that we can call self. So this last teaching is often a little unsettling. Because after all, 
It feels pretty real to me, you know. I'm, I'm real enough. How can no self possibly be true? And sometimes for some people, and I can remember this was true for me some in my early years in my practice, it creates a little fear about, I don't know about going too deep in this practice because maybe what will happen? Maybe I'll just go poof, you know, no self. And then something is dramatically and uncomfortably different. However, I would point out to you that we have, throughout human history, a long list of very awakened beings, the Buddha, Jesus, Mohammed, our friend the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, all kinds of amazing beings who have become very waked up. And they all seem to continue to be recognizable. So that, if nothing else, ought to be reassuring. We can still tell who they are. So it's not, whatever this not solid, separate self is, it's not about not being. So some things to think about. Those of you who know me well know that the world of astronomy and cosmology and astrophysics has become increasingly interesting in my old age. So you're going to get a little dose of it tonight mixed in here. So we know that the basic fabric of our being is a vast field of infinitesimal particles. And one of the interesting things to think about is that the smallest powers are about, smallest particles are about 10 powers of 10, if you can do the math, it's a lot, smaller than we are. And just for fun, the largest thing that we know of, which is the field of the cosmos at about the time of the Big Bang, was 10 powers of 10 greater than we are. So we're this, we're right in this middle, you know, very, made up of these very, very small particles, part of something that's very, very big. And we also know that you are quite literally made out of stardust. Quite literally. Every element in your body came from some explosion of a star, a supernova, once upon a time, long ago, in a galaxy far far away. <laughs> Isn't that, it's amazing when you think, it's really true. It's real. look around, you know, look around the room. It's true of everybody in this room. We were all, you know, all of this, all of this, all of this, stardust at one point or another. A long time ago, it's true, but nonetheless. However, We have brains and minds and we inhabit bodies and they function in a certain way and with our minds, our brains and our eyes we perceive things to have boundaries, right? So we say, you know, table and bell and cushion and platform and chair and, you know, we know what that means. I say me and Gil and Sharda, and, and this is a convenience. It's a good, handy way to describe events that are happening in time and space and to get around. And we need this. Recently, at our center in Santa Cruz, we had one of those wonderful Vipassana moments 
when someone went out and discovered that their shoes had walked off with someone else. You know, that's always distressing. It does happen once in a while. You know, someone isn't paying attention and they have a pair of shoes that are just like them and so they put them on and go home and there you are, wrong shoes. So, you know, it's, it's handy, isn't it? When you go out there at the end of the evening, you know which shoes are used. And when you walk over to Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka, you know which room is yours. And at the end of the retreat, you know which car is yours and you know where to go. All very, very useful in time and space. However, we also know things like if you go out tonight, looks like it might be a clear night, and you look up there and you see all these stars in the sky, and if you're like many of us, you look around and go, oh, there's the Big Dipper, right? But if you went up there in your trusty little spaceship and cruised around, would you find a Big Dipper? No, those stars aren't even particularly close together, you know? It's just a handy way in which our ancestors and many people right up until now have connected the dots and said, huh, looks like a Big Dipper, or a bear if you prefer that one. But, you know, it's a concept, it's handy. It's a way of identifying a group of stars in the sky. Or one of my most favorites... Sharda will probably appreciate this. I went in one time to um, the Exploratorium and there hanging on the wall was this most amazing map. And I looked at it and I looked again and, you know, Antarctica was on the top. And then you had South America and Africa and then you had... America, North America and Europe and down at the bottom was the North Pole. And I went, it's upside down, right? It's called the MacArthur map of the world. Is it upside down? No. It's just handy. We've gotten used to maps that have the North Pole at the top and the South Pole at the bottom. And, and as I looked at it and pondered it, I got quite interested because I thought, you know, there's an inherent, you know, we're just a little better because we're on top, right? And those folks down at the bottom, you know, those poor Aussies and folks in New Zealand, they're down at the bottom. If you go down to Australia and New Zealand, you will find that map much more often than we ever see it up here because why not, you know? And there's actually nothing that says that either pole, we could put the poles on the sides. That would be kind of an interesting map because it's just how we are happening to describe this planet out there in space. It's a concept that we've gotten very, very used to and we don't tend to think about it. And these things, you know, beginning to think about this and to find these places, it's, it's actually very helpful because it sort of shakes us loose a little bit, you know. It begins to rattle our notions of how things are. How things are. Why can't we hear the stars singing? You know, what's going on? There's a wonderful story, again, one of these end stories of 
of um, Bodhidharma, who was the great Zen sage coming into the Chinese court around, I don't know, the 12th or 13th century. And um, the emperor at the time was a man who was named the Emperor Wu, and he was kind of a spiritual seeker, but he hadn't been able to get very many really satisfactory teachings. And all of a sudden, here was this Bodhidharma is rumored to have been very tall and red hair and blue eyes, looked really, really different from the Chinese people, so he kind of stood out. And and besides that, he had great attainment, and so surely, you know, the Emperor Wu probably thought, oh, this, this person feels kind of interesting. And so he, he thought he'd ask him a few questions, and if you're an emperor and in his world of practice, people did a lot of things to make merit and, you know, building monasteries and that kind of thing. And so he said, well, you know, sir, what do you think about all these things that I'm doing to make merit? And Bodhidharma said, no merit. Not exactly what you say to the emperor. So it caught the emperor's interest, you know. So he said, well, what about all these vast, teachings, these holy scriptures. And Bodhidharma said, nothing special, vast emptiness. So that really got the emperor's interest. So then the emperor said, who are you standing there? And Bodhidharma said, haven't a clue. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? You can try it on. (laughs) Ask yourself, who are you sitting there? And then just try, just play with it all. Go, haven't a clue. Haven't a clue. We think we know, but do we? Very, very good question. What is this? You you go in, sit down in one of those planetariums and see all the images, you know, the images that come from things like the Hubble Space Scope, vast, deep space, you know, billions of galaxies, trillions of stars. What is this? What is going on? Who are you? What are you? Here's a quote from Einstein. He says, The most beautiful and profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. It is the sower of all true science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. To know that what is impenetrable to us really exists, manifesting itself as the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty, which our dull faculties can comprehend only in their primitive forms, this knowledge, this feeling, is at the center of true religion. So as we explore our situation, when the mind begins to soften and to open, to be a little more flexible, we're constantly uncovering new things. We find that to be true on the cushion. We know that that's true in the world of science. It's been very interesting to me to hear that the Dalai Lama has said, if science uncovers something that is contrary to Buddhist teachings, then we'll have to 
change our teachings because they aren't, they aren't congruent with what we know to be true. And interestingly enough, he's sending some of his monks to study physics and cosmology and universities. The truth is constantly unfolding. We can't ever settle in and think, ah, now I have it. This is it. There's another couple of lines from John O'Donohoe. He says, I would love to live like a river flows carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. I would love to live like a river flows carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So, let's come back. It's fun to get out there and get all spacey, but let's come back and be a little more grounded for a minute. So again, in Buddhism, when we talk some about our understanding of what it is that we are, we, we say that it's, that understanding is rooted in what we call the five aggregates, form, feeling, feeling in the same sense that we've been using it, the feeling tone of things, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And the Buddha uses this to describe these are the things that come together and when they come together and hang in there together in a certain way, then this is what we call a person. Sometimes they're called the five heaps, sometimes they're called the five baskets. So the awareness of form, the pleasantness and unpleasantness of our experience, the process of perception, the mental processes about our experience and the underlying consciousness. And we hold on to these in a really strong way. We identify with them. This is me. This is me. My thoughts are me. My perceptions are me. My mental formations, my stories about things are me. And when we do, we create suffering. We create a sense of self, that's who I am. We identify with the seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and touching. And we create stories which arise and wrap around our experiences. Out of those stories, intentions arise and actions arise. And we create whole cycles of suffering because we are so attached to who it is that we are. Very, very important and not so easy to see this. So like the, it's just like the Big Dipper. We connect the dots of those five things and we create something that seems real. Me. A notion of solid and separate self often that has some sense of permanence. So while I've been here, and actually quite a lot these days in my life, I've had a number of conversations about, well, one way to say it is the dots are disconnecting. And so really what that's about is old age. And that sense of diminishment that begins to come as we age. And how hard it is to have that begin to happen. To find that there are things that we can no longer do. I sat down with that first poem tonight and I thought, oh dear, I can't really see it very clearly because I've got some cataracts and stuff in my eyes right now. And 
So, you know, the body is beginning to die, actually, before I get there. And, or before all of me gets there, anyway. And so that's difficult. It doesn't fit with my image of, you know, I'm a strong and capable person. I can do all kinds of amazing yoga postures and I can backpack and I can do all that stuff. And the answer is no, not anymore. I can't do all of the things that I used to do. So we begin to see that the self is dissolving slowly. And it's very important, I think, to begin to contemplate that, particularly for those of us who, you know, when you're younger you can at least have some chance that you've got more years out there, but as you age there comes a point where you get it, that it's going to happen and it's not that far away. I'm dying. And I've actually been practicing saying that to myself regularly. I'm dying so that I can kind of get used to the notion and be able to be with that when, I hope, when I'm aware that it's really happening. So if you have any wonderings about this, think of a couple of things. One of the images that I love to use is think of all the grocery bags full of food that you've ever eaten. And imagine that it's coming along on a conveyor belt and then it goes into you and it's you. Isn't that amazing? And then it leaves and the conveyor belt goes along. Now, really, how do those carrots and potatoes and eggs and chickens and tofu know how to be you for a little bit? But it's not permanent, is it? comes in, it manifests as you for a while, and it leaves. Or recently, on a somewhat bigger scale, I went with my grandchildren to see an IMAX on prehistoric sea monsters, I think was what it was. And it was a lot of fun. And they had this amazing bit at the end that went on, couldn't have gone on for more than a couple of minutes. But it was a whirlwind tour through the eons. We had glaciers and ice ages and dinosaurs and jungles and oceans and forests and big things and little things. One after another, the world shifting and changing like that. You know, so any sense that it had been solid and the same was blown apart for at least a few minutes. Millions of years going by in about two minutes. You know. So imagine that. You know, the earth, it gets formed, it's shaped, and life forms, and, and little bits of life make more little bits of life, and one little piece of life creates another, creates another, creates another, and pretty soon it gets bigger, and after a while you've got mammals, and one mammal is popping out of another mammal, and then you have people, and you know how it is, little people pop out of bigger people, right? And... And if you speed it up a little, any illusion of separateness is gone. It's gone. You cannot hold on to the idea that you are a separate being. We're just this chunk of protoplasm oozing along through time, really. 
And at the same time, you have this sense of separateness and self because it's helpful and we need it in time and space. So when we can begin to accept this notion that we're not so separate, however it is that you get there, when we begin to see that everything that arises passes away, that it's impermanent, when we begin to see how much suffering comes when we try to hold on and make things other than what they are, this is, it's a very important place. It's where the ending of suffering begins. And it's exactly also where the heart can really begin to open. So, our Tibetan friends have wonderful practices where they, they work with the heart and they practice this thing that they call exchanging self and other. And one of the phrases, which many of you probably know, is when they talk about all motherly beings. So if you were in a Tibetan gathering, and we can pretend we are for a minute, you'd look around the room and you'd go, look, ah, everyone in here has been my mother, one lifetime or another. Now, in our culture, motherly beings don't always, that's not always such a happy thought. So I've changed it a little. And you can look around and think, all of these beings have been my children, one lifetime or another. That's pretty sweet, actually. I like to think of all of you as having been my children, and I've been the child of each one of you at one point or another. And the practice is that because what we're working to do is to begin to cherish all other beings in the same way that you would want to be cherished. And when we do that, when we begin to have that sense of exchanging ourselves with others, when we really begin to have that sense of interconnectedness, um, it deepens that understanding of connection and, and deepens the understanding of the suffering that comes with separation. If I meet someone else and immediately have a strong sense of us and them, or me and you, sometimes me, me versus you, then immediately that creates division, doesn't it? It creates a division, sometimes it creates opposition, and sometimes it leads to conflict and ultimately to wars. And I've long been taken with the teachings of Aikido, where when you enter into the, the place of meeting your opponent, the notion is to become very vast, very vast. And you take that opponent in and you move the whole system to a safe place. I lost my quote. So Urashiba, who is, was the founder of Aikido, he says, if your heart is large enough to envelop your adversaries, you can see right through them and avoid their attacks. So your heart is opening up to take them in. And once you envelop them, you will be able to guide them along the path indicated to you by heaven and earth. He also says, when an opponent comes forward, move in and greet him. Wonderful, huh? So 
So this whole sense of opposition isn't going to work. That it's that place of inclusion of no self, no other, but the whole field moving to safety. So we begin as practitioners to work with that. Can we meet in each being, we meet ourselves or because we aren't separate, or maybe you have some sense that this person might have been your child or your parent or your grandchild or your beloved friend at some point. And of course, that invites a certain amount of work on ourselves, doesn't it? Because not everyone we meet is easy. You know, there's some very difficult beings out there. And, you know, I often have pondered this a lot. I have, we have in our neighborhood a couple of people who are very, very difficult, have created a lot of conflict and some court appearances and, you know, it's not been good. And so there you have this person. How am I going to meet that person with an open heart? Or I personally, the, my father-in-law's wife, um, is not very happy with me and doesn't want me to be around her. So that creates a certain family conflict and a lot of pain. How do I keep my heart open under those kinds of circumstances? Or you can imagine, like we mentioned a few nights ago, you know, there's political figures that most of us have some strong feelings about, and maybe you don't like their ideas or you feel that their ideas are threatening disaster for our, our culture and our world. And how do you open your heart to them? You know, this is not an easy practice. Or maybe there's somebody in your life who harmed you in a very significant way. So if we're going to be able to meet those energies and really understand this as a whole, we have to know them in ourselves. It really invites work on what Jung would have called the shadow, you know, that side of ourselves that we don't know. Some of you are old enough probably to remember Pogo from the comic strip world. And it was a wonderful scene in which he comes back and he says, I have met the enemy and they are us. You know, I've met the enemy and they are us. So the enemy is us, you know. We are all, we all have all of those energies and we all have the potential to do great harm. You might remember those five precepts that we took, you know, and to take the precept of not harming, of not taking that which is not given, of not harming with my sexuality, not harming with my speech, not intoxicating body or mind. We don't take those precepts just to remind each other that we're nice. We take those precepts and all other ethical forms of, you know, the Ten Commandments and all the other ethical systems, we take those because if we didn't, we wouldn't behave. That's really true. You know, that, that it's, it's that place in the human being where we have, all of us, the darker energies. So, when my neighbor is being particularly difficult, you know, screaming at the person who lives next to her or, you know, doing some of the things that she's done, or I have to do something that involves my father-in-law's wife, when I'm in a place of being clear and centered, I can recognize that the pain that this person has is something that I know. I recognize the fear 
I recognize the rigidity. And when I do that, then I understand it and I also have a much better sense of how to move everything into a safe place. I can't make any of these people like me. I can't make them be happy with me. There are people that we can't ever be friends with. We all know that. But I can keep my heart open and wish them well and be happy. You know, when I notice that the neighbor seems to be happier these days and isn't so depressed and is doing some things that look like fun, you know, that's really cool. It makes me excited because her happiness is in fact my happiness. And when I hear that my father-in-law's wife is doing better, her health is improved, that's good too. So we need to train in these practices of kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy, because, you know, the ground, the image, again, a Tibetan image, I seem to be doing a lot of those tonight, the ground of our heart and mind is like it's frozen, you know? And so you were digging drainage ditches in that frozen ground to allow our energy to flow into a new and different place, the place of grandmotherly love and compassion and, and really being able to be fully present. And we can train in sympathetic joy. And I want to spend the last part of the talk on sympathetic joy. Mudita, the ability to enjoy our own happiness and that of others. And I want to focus on it because it's an area that often doesn't get a lot of airtime. And there's often quite a bit of separation that we don't notice. We don't quite notice. So, you know, it has phrases like a lot of the other practices. May my happiness or your happiness last a long time. May you enjoy your happiness a long time. That kind of thing. And so it's really strengthening our ability to enjoy happiness. It's likened to the appreciation of a flower in full bloom, you know, even though it's momentary. And it counters the feelings of resentment and jealousy. Um, And it heals any urge that we might have to suppress the happiness of another. You know, it was interesting today, a number of you came in and talked almost had this feeling that you were a little guilty because you were happy. Like, what is this? You know, I'm on this meditation retreat and it's supposed to be tough and I'm having all this joy, you know? And, and we, qu- we question that, don't we, sometimes when we're happy. I, am I really supposed to be happy? And, you know, of course we also do the thing, some people commented on that, here you are being happy. Beautiful day. Blue sky, sunshine, turkeys strutting around doing their thing. And what are you doing? You are planning the next retreat. Isn't that amazing? I could come and be here for two months. Or I wonder if they have turkeys at Barry. Or, you know, what about (laughs) Thailand? And pretty soon you're calculating airfares. And are you enjoying your own happiness? No. You know. We also don't always enjoy the happiness of others. I found a quote from Montaigne who says, there's something altogether not too displeasing in the misfortunes of our friends. We don't quite want them to be happy. And You know how easy it is, you know, somebody's just gotten a new car, you know, and you say, oh, you got a 
Toyota? Yeah, well, let me tell you about the new whatever. And so, you know, you, you sort of remind them that even though they may be perfectly happy with their Toyota or their Chevrolet or their Ford or whatever, you know, there is something better. Or, you know, maybe you let them know that the teacher of the retreat that they just attended is really quite good. But, you know, I just went to a retreat with the most fabulous teachers. So it's just that little place where, where we don't just relax into another's happiness. But when we can feel it, when we let ourselves feel it, it's a place of really strong connection. I have a friend who recently fell in love after a long, dry spell. And you know how that is when somebody falls in love. I mean, they're just a little ditzy and spacey and happy and stoned. And, and, and it's so yummy to be around. And so imagine, you know, relaxing and not having opinions about choice of relationship or anything like that, but just relaxing into this person's happiness. Or, you know, as I looked around today and watched faces as people watched turkeys, or there were some new fawns at one point, there's a couple of of new ones with spots, you know, to really, you know, just taste that joy in another person's face. And when we, when we, enjoy the happiness of another. That's one of the places where we begin to counter that solid and separate sense of self. We are interconnected. Your joy is my joy. It's really true. My friend's joy in her new love is also my joy. We're all in love. We share in each other's pain. That's for sure true. But we also, and it's so important to remember this, we share in each other's joy. Another's happiness, it's not the same as mine, it's not better than mine, now mine isn't better than hers, but it's ours. It's our delight, our joy. May it last a long time. So, there is a practice that I've used a lot for compassion. Some of you have heard me teach it, I know, where um, you breathe in the difficulty, whatever it is that is happening, you breathe it into your heart, sometimes you imagine it, and then out of the heart, because the heart quivers, that's what the word karuna means actually, the heart quivers, and then you breathe out compassion. Great practice, I use it a lot with sirens and accidents and things like that in my everyday life. And it occurred to me when I was thinking this, we could do the same thing for, our, for joy, wouldn't that be wonderful? You see somebody who's really happy and you breathe it in and let yourself take in this happiness that another being is having. You can feel it and feel your heart sing and then you breathe out the rejoicing and the joy at their heart joy. It's a very profoundly connecting practice when we do that. And it very much begins to erode that sense of a separate self. So to go back to my neighborhood, I have lots of interesting characters in my neighborhood. I have a neighbor who is something of a recluse, and um, he doesn't like my Australian shepherd dog, who, you know, because she's smart and a little yappy, can be a little annoying. 
And they had a bit of a, mm, an encounter many years ago, and so she knows that he doesn't like her, which doesn't improve matters much. And she used to do things like run down his driveway to bark at him in his house. That's, you know, <laughs> not so cool. So there's been a bit of a mm, standoff. We'd, he's, he's kind of reclusive anyway, so there were, never was a lot of relationship, but we'd had a cordial relationship. And then for a long time we didn't speak to each other at all. So this is a little distressing, and I've kind of tried tried to think what to do, what to do. I have the dog, he doesn't like the dog. And not too long ago I went down to, I live on a piece of private road that has maybe about 100 families on it. We periodically have road association meetings to figure out about paving and that kind of thing. And just as I parked the car and started to get out, I realized there he was unavoidable. I could not get into this meeting without encountering this man. And I remembered something that I had seen just a few days before. And I said, Chris, that's his name, I noticed that you had a cat down by your house. I'd never seen a cat at his house before. And his face lit up And he said, oh, yes. He said, this cat has come to visit me. And it's a lovely cat, and I'm having such a nice time, and I'm feeding it, and we talked back and forth about how happy he was at the cat, and I was happy for him that he had the cat. And we made this lovely connection that didn't fix everything, for sure. But it went a long way towards connecting and healing and that sense of, oh, he's not as other as I sometimes wanted to make him. And I hope it worked for him too, I don't know. We aren't talking that much. We're not separate, we're not, you know. And we know that that's true, we know how connected we are. Your pain is in fact really mine, your joy is mine. My practice is to feel both of them, to share them with you. But tonight, you know, Buddhism has kind of a bad rap. You know, sometimes people say, oh, Buddhism's all about suffering. And sometimes, you know, a number of you have said, oh, you know, everybody here looks so grim. And as we're focusing on, you know, we're really focusing on our own experience. This is what we're doing, and it is why it looks grim. And inside that kind of sober exterior, there's an enormous amount of joy. None, the Buddha did not teach this. He didn't teach it. He didn't say, I come to teach so that all people, will see, all beings will see their suffering. He, came, he said, I came to teach about the nature of suffering and the ending of suffering. This is not about staying caught in your pain and suffering. It's about coming to that place where our hearts open and we rejoice and we share that because, because we are not separate. So I wanted to end with another poem, one of my favorites. This is from Billy Collins. It's called Despair, but it's better than it sounds. He says, So much gloom and doubt in our poetry. 
flowers wilting on the table, the self regarding itself in a watery mirror. Dead leaves cover the ground, the wind moans in the chimney, and tendrils of the yew tree inch toward the coffin. I wonder what the ancient Chinese poets would make of all this, the shadows and empty cupboards. Today, so you can think of a day like today, with the sun blazing in the trees, my thoughts turn to the great 10th century celebrators of experience. Wahoo, whose delight in the smallest things could hardly be restrained, and to his joyous counterpart in the western provinces, Yeeha. <laughs> so may you enjoy your happiness, and may none of us get caught in our separate selves. So let's sit for just, stay just as you are, don't need to move, just relax and be comfortable, and let's just breathe together. So thank you very much for listening and please enjoy your walking time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.